Welcome to London Lopate at Large. I'm London Lopate. A new book co-edited by Walter Grayson and Danian Daryl Jerry uses a mix of social science and hip-hop essays to address the marginalization of blacks in the United States and to offer some solutions to cultural divisiveness. The book, Illmatic Consequences, the Clapback to Opponents of Critical Race Theory, published by Universal Right Publications, and brings Walter Grayson and Daniel Daryl Jerry to our show now. Welcome. Hey. Thank you. And since there are two of you, unless I address you by name, I'm going to rely on you to decide which one should answer what question, okay? All good. Sounds great. Perhaps we should begin with a definition of the word Illmatic. Wasn't it coined by the hip-hop artist Naz as the title of his 1994 album? Yes. Automatically ill, intrinsically cool. Hmm. This is basically the heart of the black freedom struggle, the way that people respond when they face adversity, how we actually take it all in stride, keep moving forward, stand up for ourselves, and preserve dignity for all people. And how does it relate to critical race theory? (laughs) So lots of ways, lots of ways. That's why you have more than 30 perspectives in the book exploring that connection. You have a lot of different writers writing in this book. That's that's the joy of the project. And so the particular connection is that when you look at the work of Kimberly Crenshaw, you look at the work of Derek Bell, they are automatically ill. They are the embodiment of that human dignity, that fundamental cool. The truth of critical race theory is the way that we affirm human dignity through civil rights law. And that's the work that the core of critical race theory is. It's why it has been propagandized and attacked, it's because people question the power of the analysis to actually transform our society. The album was released 29 years ago, and much had been made recently about the birth of hip-hop 30 years ago, although... Yeah, 50, 50. 50 years ago, I guess, yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, hip-hop is often criticized as misogynistic, violent, and materialistic. Hasn't it also been responsive to issues like education, history, police brutality, and social justice more than just rap? Yeah, Damien, go for that. I know you got that. I'm sorry, can you, can you repeat the, the last part of the question, please? Hasn't it been responsive to issues like education, history, police brutality, and social injustice the oh yes, yes, sir. Like um, since its inception, really. But there are certain records where we can actually we can mark that progression. Um, the message by Grandmaster Flash is probably one of the earliest um examples of socially conscious rap music. Then you we come up into the eighties, and you have two artists, KRS One and Public Enemy who really, really heightened um, the level of social social consciousness and self-awareness in um, rap music. In fact, in 1994, I think, like, Fight the Power was, like, the number one song um, on the number one rap song on the radio. And it's not, it's not an accident that a lot of the um, the social upheaval that we get in that time, a lot of the fighting back 
pushing back against the system is du- is directly related to that music. Um, KRS-One's album, um, The Blueprint, is like one of the most, is one of the best examples, I believe, of socially conscious rap music. He has a song called You Must Learn. Mm. And in that song, it's funny because he talks about education and he talks about the need for diverse education and the importance of teaching children about the roots of racism, but also teaching children how to push back against racism, teaching children how to say, no, we're not going to accept this um, this sanitized version of history that you're trying to give us. We're going to do our own research. Mm. So, yes, no, um, hip hop has a long, long history of being a voice for those who who don't have a voice. Addressing the disinformation uh, campaign against CRT and the attacks on public education, the rise mm-hmm. of mass disinformation and other social injustice issues. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, you mean in terms of hip hop? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because um, I, cause I'm not totally aware of that. Do, have I not been listening closely enough? <laughs> um, no, I, w- I wouldn't say that. I would say that, okay, like, sometimes like radio stations, you know, they have particular formats of songs that they play, music they play. Um, oftentimes, like radio, especially like nowadays, like radio stations will play like more music that is geared towards partying. Um, so some of the socially conscious aspects of the music is left out. But we could bring it up to, like, for instance, let's talk about Illmatic. Um, Illmatic is an album that really does a great job of laying out the ills of society, but also just describing what goes on in an urban community. By Nazir Jones, right? Who called himself Naz? Yes, by Nazir Jones, who calls, is, who calls himself Nas. Um, and not, and Nas is short for Nazir, mm-hmm. which is which is sort of um, Nazir plays to his Muslim background. And but that album, Illmatic, it it talks about police brutality, um, the industrial prison complex, um, the the unequal administration of the law, right? But mainly, in my opinion. What Illmatic did for me is showed me that there were people all over the country, all over the world who were experiencing the same problems that I saw in my own neighborhood growing up. Now, he grew up in Queensbridge Housing, the largest housing yes. project in North America. Were its yes. tenants largely people of color? Um, Not at first. I think like after the 50s, like they started... The, they started not necessarily segregating the population in Queensbridge houses, but they but they started moving people who made higher incomes out of Queensbridge houses mm-hmm. and sort of turned it into a lower income community. And sort of like this, like it just plays out like years later to where you have an environment that's um that's impoverished. And when you when you're talking about an impoverished environment, you're going to naturally have certain problems that come along with that. 
in my own city, um, Memphis, like I said, the same thing. One of the reasons I connected with it is with Illmatic is because of the way that the, the housing projects were operating in my neighborhood, in my, in my city. Um, the first housing Tennessee project. Tennessee is like Queens. No, well, I'm from Memphis, Tennessee. Yes. Yeah. And the first housing projects in Memphis, Tennessee, um, were called Foots Homes Housing Projects. And Foots Homes actually was built on top of a, um, a, a, it was a, it was a mixed neighborhood, right? But the neighborhood was, it was a middle class neighborhood and it was filled with people who were upwardly mobile, both black and white. But the, the neighborhood was bulldozed in, in the guise of what they, they called it urban renewal re- renewal and they were calling it slum removal but the neighborhood that was bulldozed that bulldozed was not a slum it was a middle class neighborhood filled with homeowners who were displaced right and they um bulldozed the houses built the projects on top of that and then the homeowners were given the opportunity to move back in and rent if they wanted to and I say opportunity, totally sarcastic. <laughs> and that's a big piece, if I could jump in, Leonard. You go ahead, like this please. This piece that, that we're talking about with public housing, whether it's Queensbridge or we're looking at Memphis, this is a really commonplace story nationwide between 1940 and 1970, that if you're examining public housing, the transition between working families, upper working class families being able to have stable, safe living conditions, and then the expansion of suburbs, single family housing on the fringes of the cities that draws out a lot of people that had been kind of the core population of these initial public housing initiatives under the New Deal and the early years of the Cold War. Now those families are relocating out to the edges and you're leaving behind large communities of working lower working class families that are really struggling. And so this then provoked a public housing crisis Hmm. where federal dollars were cut off. People weren't investing in public housing anymore because there was such a private subsidy through mortgage insurance that basically gave the opportunity for banks to give low cost mortgages for folks who moved out to single family homes and expanded the suburbs nationwide. And so there's two edges to this story. And this is what I really wanted to get at overall about both the book and the the Illmatic album, and ultimately about critical race theory, is that the methodology of storytelling is at the heart of all of it, is that what we choose to communicate, how we choose to promote it, the way we bring out the narratives that actually reinforce the analysis of lived experiences, people going through these kinds of societal transformations, is crucial. And that's the main goal we have coming out of the book, is that in three sections, we correct the, the the record about what critical race theory is in the first part of the book. We spend the second part deconstructing the propaganda campaign that was used to attack it. After and then the, the 2020 section, election. And then we provide the last section, which is solutions, which is ways that we can move forward today to actually correct some of the wrongs that we've been talking about, whether it's in terms of public housing or mass incarceration, the war on drugs. Um, these tools all come together in the way that this book lays out the current situation. Now, why do you think there was a disinformation and propaganda campaign after the 2020 election? Uh, This is years after what you're describing happened. 
Yeah, no, there started to be a breakthrough really coming out of Black Lives Matter between 2015 and 2020, and especially after the uh, killing of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, that there was unprecedented nationwide engagement with the theories and, and the concepts of critical race theory that basically let people begin to understand structural racism, that there is a system of ideas that maintained segregation that allowed black lives to be devalued. And so by the time you get to the summer of 2015, conservatism is in a crisis. When they're committed to an idea of white nationalism, increasingly white suburban residents are, and their children especially, are critiquing the way that the society has evolved. And so it's a response to the power of Black Lives Matter and the, and the widespread use of critical race theories concepts in public discourse that you get this movement among kind of white nationalist conservatives to then mobilize and, and dismantle the possibility that people will take critical race theory seriously well, and, the, and the misrepresentation of it to eliminate black history. And as we've seen in Florida and Texas, to dismantle any kind of approach to knowledge creation that might challenge longstanding racial or sexual authority. And the attacks have been mostly on uh, the teaching of racial history by, against local school boards. Oh, my goodness. This is what initially got my attention was when I started to see folks that were like January 6th militias attacking local school board leaders. And I've spent three years now traveling across the country, giving school board leaders, giving state leaders the tools to really stand up to people. Going who ultra black. We going. Sorry. And so that's the piece where I'm like, you know, this this cannot be tolerated. Um, and we're at the, we're at the point where we can break the back of Christian nationalism as a conservative movement and actually have the country stand up together and actually move to a better future, not predicated on racial injustice and the suppression of, of different groups of, um, sexual minorities. My guests on today's Leonard Lopate at large are Walter Grayson and, uh, Danian Daryl Jerry, who are the co-editors of a book with many contributors. The book is called Illmatic Consequences, The Clapback of, of, to Opponents of Critical Race Theory, published by Universal Right Publication, W-R-I-T-E. Uh, now, uh, your contributors address the crisis. Uh, um, uh, these are, in quotes, the crisis, the clapback, and the consequences using hip-hop and afro Futurism as models for analysis and solutions to the cultural divisions in the United States. How does Afrofuturism come into the story? Well, um, Afrofuturism comes into the story because we, people in general, often use culture to fight back against oppressive structures. I mean, this is, um, you know, historically correct, right? So, when we when we talk about Derek Bell and who is considered to be sort of like one of the forefathers, really the forefather of critical race theory, um, which was critical race theory. The term was coined actually by Kimberly Crenshaw. Mm -hmm. But Derek Bell is considered to be one of the, the forefathers of it. Um, so it was being discussed before she coined the term? Um Yes, well, he was dealing with the the he was dealing with the the issues 
and he was discussing the the kinds of cases and the types of civil rights cases that would rise to uh, Kimberly Crenshaw coining this phrase. Mm -hmm. And the thing about Derrick Bell is not only was he a pioneering civil rights attorney, Derrick Bell also wrote pioneering black science fiction. Um, His story, Space Traders, um, is considered to be a cornerstone of Afrofuturism. It was he published it in his book, uh, Faces at the Bottom of the Well, but it was also reprinted in Dark Matter, um, a hundred years of black speculative fiction. So it's sort of that story in itself, um, is a big, big part of Afrofuturism. So just the fact that Derek Bell himself sort of like straddles, um, both of these genres. But I will also say this, Derrick Bell's work as a science fiction writer is directly influenced by his work as a civil rights attorney. In fact, the story Space Traders, um, he, that was influenced by his study of, um, the Japanese citizens in the United States, um, and their internment, um, during World War II. So he took that and he created this story about aliens coming to planet Earth and offering the United States the problems to all the, um, the, the solutions to all of the problems. But the only thing they had to do in order to get the solutions was they had to turn over all of their black citizens. Right. So just that how he uses fiction to analyze um, not only racism, but also the way that law sort of can be used to perpetuate racism, right? That's what, that's one of the things that connects Afrofuturism to critical race theory. Was- Absolutely. And so let me, let me just build on that a little bit. Please. Is that, um, when we see this foundation, um, my work, particularly focuses on this idea that Afrofuturism is not just a product of what's emerged since the Black Panther film and the popular Mm -hmm. understanding of it since 2018. That, in fact, just as Sheree Ray Thomas shows, is that it goes back at least a 100 years and certainly more, is that to be engaged in the Black freedom struggle is very much to always be engaged in Afrofuturism. It's that you're critiquing the current circumstances and the history of how it came to be but you're also projecting an imagined version of what a better future would be. And so Frederick Douglass is an Afrofuturist. T. Thomas Fortune is an Afrofuturist. Ida Wells Barnett and Harriet Tubman are Afrofuturists. For me, this comes under the phrase, every past was once a future, is that whatever point in time in history that you want to look at, there is a time before that when people were making choices and decisions that shaped the conditions that made the, that eventual future take take its own reality takes shape. And so that's what Afrofuturism teaches us is that it's not as linear as just seeing a past, a present and a future. They're connected to each other. And our choices right now reflect the way that choices were made decades ago. And in fact, our choices today will shape the way that people make decisions in the future. How educational was the music? Uh, Run DMC song, Proud to be Black, mentioned Malcolm X and you point out that many young black people, kids hadn't heard of him until then. Um, I w- and 
I would like to share my story. Uh, yeah. So re- that's how I learned about Malcolm you, you X. You thought Malcolm was, X was a DJ. I did. So, and I had never heard the name Malcolm X. Um, I had never heard Malcolm X mentioned in school. Um, no one ever talked about him. So when I found out, I was like, I, I asked my mother who he was and she told me he was a militant and I, I, and she just told me he was a militant and she said, well, you know, you have to do the research to find out, you know, who he is. I was a teenager at that time. And when I went and I looked up Malcolm X's life and I was like, I just could not figure out why he was not in my history book. Um, and well, so you thought he was a rapper because so many rappers were talking about him. Well, it really I thought he was a rapper because his name was Malcolm X. And, you know, rappers have like aliases like run. You know, that's not his real name. So and and one of the more socially conscious groups, Public Enemy. Their DJ's name was Terminator X. Uh-huh. At that time, since I did not know who Malcolm X was, I did not know that he was the influence for the DJ taking on that name, putting that X on the end of his name. So I basically thought that Malcolm X was a DJ and a rapper just because of the name, because of the X at the end, because I had no, I had no context for 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 understanding why he chose to call himself Malcolm X instead of Malcolm Little to begin with. And I'll say this, and I think I've said this before, but the fact that I had never heard of Malcolm X, that's that's what made me believe the things that Malcolm X said. Because he himself at that time was kind of had been erased from history. So I was like, wow, you know, like he there there must be truth in what he's saying. But uh, I knew about Malcolm X growing up in in New York. Uh, Was this also a regional thing? It could have been. But um, the reason that I say that I don't that for me, it wasn't regional, I guess, is because I had never seen Malcolm on television. Mm. I had never read about him in a history book. It seems that like even, you know, I had seen Roots and um things like that. And I also say this, I was a, I was a kid, so I was 14. So I may have, you know, only, I may have only had access to certain kinds of information. I mean, when I went looking for who Malcolm X was, when I, when I went to the library and looked him up, hmm. I found out who he was. So maybe it's that hip hop gave me that spark. It was that catalyst that sent me on a journey. But, you know, I mean, the information was there, but I, I needed to be given the seeds so I could find it. Now, Walter, you said, quote, Naz's 1994 album Illmatic is fundamentally a statement of self-worth. It's not even just a conscious effort. It's just you do it because it's embedded in you. And that's the feeling. That's the vibe we wanted anyone. You say that the vibe you want anyone reading the book to get from the constituent chapters. Yes, indeed. And so this is this is going to dovetail a lot with what Damien just said, is that coming up in the 60s, 70s, 80s, um, coming out of the civil rights movement and the black power movement, you have to understand a lot of folks who were senior leaders at that point in their 70s, their 80s, are still struggling with a sense of self-love. Um, they're still struggling with what W.E.B. Du Bois called the double consciousness. There's this ghost in their mind. 
that made them self-doubt and, and feel like, well, I'm not really that, that well-spoken. I'm not really that smart. I'm not really that handsome or, or beautiful. Those kinds of conditions of racial segregation and the way it poisoned a people's sense of self, this is what hip hop is, is speaking out against. This is what is manifesting in the decade that led up to Nas's publication of the album. People felt it was actually necessary. People felt it was actually necessary to say things like black is beautiful. Absolutely. Absolutely. That if you don't have these statements, if you don't have Malcolm X, if you don't have Muhammad Ali, if you don't have the Black Panther Party standing up and teaching a different rhetoric, a different logic about how people saw themselves, we never get to the place where hip hop is born in August of 1973. And hip hop is born out of this moment where people are starting to see their self-worth and not just believe it internally, but proclaim it and say it in ways that people cannot like deny. And so you'll see through the 1980s, I guess when we come to Public Enemy and Chuck D, that was my moment where it was like, oh, um, Elvis was a hero to most, but he never meant anything to me. That, that piece where you start to take down these icons of what it meant to be, um, the, the defining figure in popular culture, just to have a group be successful named Public Enemy talking about issues of police brutality and incarceration. Those things were all laying the table for what, laying, laying the foundation for what Nas would do with Elmatic. When he comes out and he's actually saying that life in the Queensbridge projects has dimension, has depth. It is not just the evening news depiction of addiction and poverty and violence. It is those things, but it is also so much more. And so I always love when I come to It Ain't Hard to Tell. It's just this amazing, beautiful composition where Nas is talking about how extraordinary his life is and how unique his gifts are. And to be essentially a high schooler, someone who is just starting their life and begin to articulate how, how important their voice is, how, and how vital their experiences are. That's opening the door for millions of people around the world to break out of the, the mental shackles that, um, you see in, in Carter Woodson's miseducation of the Negro. This sense that you're, you are only what the world tells you, and the world tells you you must be degraded. That's hip-hop's greatest power. It breaks us out of these chains. And it's not just about the academic field of black studies. It's about what people can do for themselves on their own terms, outside of schools, outside of courtrooms, outside of legitimate institutions. And ultimately, that's what Afrofuturism does in our consequence section. It lets us build new institutions that actually render us as fully human beings, that give us our full dignity. You say that when you were a kid, you lived in an impoverished community. You remember a police officer responding to questions like, why are you always pulling this group of young men over? Why are you always harassing them when you pretty much know that the drug dealers are in the neighborhood and who the drug dealers are not? Uh, he's, and he said, when I see a group of you, and as uh, in you, he meant young black men or young black people, when I see a group of you, there's a 50-50 chance that you're breaking the law, so I just pull you over and see. Mm-hmm. And, and let's not forget, like, he was talking to children when he said this. This yeah. police officer was a grown adult man. What is that teaching ta- those children? Excuse me? What is that teaching those children? 
what it was teaching those children is that that was a part of their life. Um, and a kid cannot really look past it. They just know, okay, this is what life is supposed to be, that you are subject to violation at any time. And we're talking about the type of violation that um, is akin to that um, in any fascist country. Police pulling you over, stripping you in the street, like, you know, and um, harassing you, um, beating you up, brutalizing you on a daily basis to the point where as a child, a black child, when you see the police, you automatically get nervous. And this was in like, um, we're talking like late 80s, early 90s. Now, when children see police, they fear death. Like, it's, it's gotten worse over the years. Like, children, like, they have to be, children have to be counseled by their parents on, in order, um, like, on what to do and what to say in order to survive those encounters. These are like basic conversations that African-American parents have with their children all the time. Even when you know, the cops are African-American? Even when the cops are African-Americans. Yes, um, yes, sir. And in, in Memphis, um, there's this famous case going on right now. Um, this uh, young man, um, Tyree Nichols, um, he was assaulted and he was murdered by the police, by the police. And they were by black officers. And the officers are on trial right now. Um, so I was, I don't know, like the, the proper legal talk would be, you know, allegedly or, you know, whatever, but like it's, it's all on camera. Um, it's been all over social media. It, anyone can go and look and see. So yes, even when the officers are black, um, it's even when the officers are black, it's like the institution is still the same. So, Often, I'm not going to say all the time, but often a police officer they're going they take on they take on the the they take on the mentality of those that who they're around and they become a part of that mental environment. So they look at the black youth the same way sometimes. So it In becomes fact, a matter of class to some degree. Um. Yes, I would say to a degree. Um. Even back, like myself, um, being a teenager growing up, um. Uh, in an impoverished community, yes, um, there were white officers that patrolled our neighborhood and there were black officers that patrolled our neighborhood. And they were pretty much the same as, in the terms of how they related to the, the, the citizens of the, of the neighborhood. You're listening. Yeah, you be, Go ahead. You got to be careful with the piece on class just because that's exactly what Crenshaw points us towards mm. and then leads us through intersectionality is that it's certainly a class dynamic, but it's always also raced. It is also always languaged and gendered. Like these other forces are always kind of interacting together. And this is one of the problems we have to kind of take when we confront Isabel Wilkerson's cast is that it's easy to kind of take a, a system of social control that we're, we're making assumptions about in South Asia and then to apply it to kind of modern industrial complex in the United States. Um, race is not caste. Um, it shares some similarities, but race evolves. And this is what we're seeing in this coming generation is that if you look at folks, um, incidents like we saw with uh, Trayvon Martin or we're seeing with incidents with uh, shooters across Texas, there are young Hispanic men that are on the margins of society that are essentially auditioning to become the next generation of white nationalists. 
And so when we see these kinds of incidents, this isn't simply caste, because if it was a caste, they could not escape their status of, of the role they were put into. There's a way that they're seeing their racial identity potentially change through the application of violence, particularly against black people and black youth. And that's the thing that's most dangerous, is that whiteness changes, blackness changes. These ideas of who is Asian or who is Latino or, or Latinx or Latine, these things are always evolving. And so they're not as permanent and rigid as what we see in ancient systems of caste identity. And that that's what actually we gain from doing critical race theory, is a way to talk about the reality with nuance and with detail and to be able to understand the realities in some ways that that wouldn't make sense if we just try to oversimplify it to one factor over another. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large at WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. We going ultra black. We going, we going, uh, rhythm and blues, pop rock, soul to jazz, to my toes attack. How I look being told, I'm not supposed to brag. Nobody fault, I tell the truth, I know what's facts. We ultra black, grace tone, skin tone, but multi that, multiple. I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Walter Grayson and Danny and Daryl Jerry. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of their book, Illmatic Consequences, the Clap or Back to Opponents of Critical Race Theory. To do that, just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show and We'll be happy to send you a copy, but don't forget to make that $50 donation or more in the name of Leonard Lopate of Large. And we thank you very much and return now to Walter Grayson and Dinian Darrell Jerry. Their book is published by Universal Right Publications. Um, were, were they enthusiastic about publishing this? Because it required getting an awful lot of signed agreements from the different contributors. Yes, sir. No, they were really positive from from the very beginning. Um, when they saw the number of potential contributors we had, that actually increased the enthusiasm because they realized that the number of audiences that it would speak to uh, was quite large and, and, in fact, would, was international. And so that was something that, that drove the discussion o- over the years of doing the editing, doing the production, that, you know, this became the flagship title for, for the press. Mm-hmm. It was the way that they explained to their, their major partner, which is Sage Publications in, in both New York and London, <laughs> that this work was vital for the moment. Everyone saw the way that the tensions were rising around critical race theory over the last several years. And this became a unique book that took scholarship from the academy and had it speak to the public at large and and that was the the really vital piece of it um it'll it, it's not a book like any other it's something that blends art and music and poetry with critical analysis from multiple disciplines and so um to have this as the lead title for the press i i know the folks in in io as as the core black woman who founded and leads leads the press is just tremendously proud, and, and we're just thrilled to work with her every day in pushing this work forward. Too bad that it was completed before uh, 
people started claiming that slavery was actually a good thing for black people. Well, uh, uh, vital. <laughs> when we when, when it's funny because when we first um when we first started working on the book, we knew that the issues surrounding critical race theory were going to get worse. Um, we knew that the talking points would only magnify. So it's, it's not a surprise that, um, that Florida has gone, has gone the way it has gone. Um, there's been recent, um, legislature in Tennessee hmm. that is very similar. So we feel though, actually we feel that this book is right on time to deal with this. Um, and this book is, also will give teachers um, methods that they can use to resist. So we feel as though the nature of this book is very timely. Didn't Donald Trump's executive order 13950 claim to combat stereotyping, uh, that it was an attack on critical race theory without actually mentioning it? Well, yes. and, and Yeah. It, it, what he, happened? Well, Donald Trump was influenced by, you know, um, the, the, it's infamous now, the Mark Rufo appearance on Tucker Carlson tonight, where Tucker Carlson identifies critical race theory as this quote unquote existential threat to the United States. Oh, God. Mm hmm. And so, what, yeah, were, what like, were his reasons for saying that? That it was going to lead to a race war or something? That ultimately, like, you got to go behind their idea. So when you get Tucker Carlson and Rufo pushing this, you have to understand that their position as, as Christian nationalists, uh, folks who only understand the world through essentially uh, a stereotype themselves of European and European descended cultural influences. What, what people referred to a hundred years ago as Anglo-Saxonism. That essentially, uh, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant is the best culture in the world. It's sanctioned by God spiritually and it is protected by science through genetics. And so a ridiculous mi uh, mixture, um, combination of savage ide ideologies that they are then trying to promote today under the great replacement theory that they don't want to live in a multicultural world. They see, um, anything from Africa or Asia or Latin America, certainly indigenous cultures, as inherently inferior. And that piece is at the heart of why that this kind of rhetoric takes hold. And so what happens, and we talk about this in, in the clapback section, in that the, this white nationalism is basically a poison where people can't come to grips with the fact that the world has much more history, much more sociology, much more science uh, than what we've been told. And so there's this resistance to anything that would challenge white authority. And and I'm grateful for um, Matthew Touch's chapter that talks about these kinds of influence of commitment to white segregationism, that this section really lays out the, the core principle that we can live together but we need to embrace all of the different lines of heritage. We can't continue to say Anglo-Saxonism or Western Europe is the only or the highest expression of human culture. Wait, so Adam so and Eve were from Britain? 
They were <laughs> And so that's that's the thing that now folks like Rufo are moving forward in Florida, basically advancing this idea that um, white identity is a protected class, hmm. just like people who are of African descent or of indigenous nations, that they're trying to take the civil rights infrastructure that was established in 1964 and 1965 and apply that to, to a fictitious threat against white identity. Um, they never want to grapple with the fact that, in fact, white identity politics still dominates the U.S. Senate and the Fortune 500 and the Supreme Court, that these core ideas and values that really affirmative action was designed to undo, that critical race theory was designed to expose, these things continue to prevail, but they feel like they might be wobbly, they might be falling apart. And so that's why you get the attack on critical race theory and affirmative action, even on Roe versus Wade. It's all about colonizing women's reproductive capacity so that you can reassert this sense of, of Western European or white genetic authority, superiority. And it's all poisonous. It's all deadly. It is, it is wrecked American society in a fundamental way. And, and it's, it's hard. We have to rebuild something new and better, more inclusive. But in the meantime, we're suffering all of these attacks. That's a sort of, um, rebranding that they're doing where they're trying to say that talking about racism is racist hmm. right and that's kind of in essence what you get with Trump's executive order right which was meant to get rid of diversity and equity inclusion in government like in government training organizations you're not supposed to you're not supposed to suggest that there is anything um, racist about the way, for, for instance, about the founding of America. My guests on today's London Lopate at Large are Walter Grayson and Danian Daryl Jerry, co-editors of a new book from uh, Universal Right Publications called Elmatic Consequences, The Clapback, to opponents of critical race theory. Uh, this is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. So what was, what does Texas's critical race theory law, which is passed in 2021, stipulate? It's largely the same, well, I'm looking at these consequences that have emerged out of Houston Independent School District. And I know folks who are on the ground doing the work in, in Texas school districts in, in some detail. But it's basically removing a number of superintendents, placing white nationalists in charge of the school districts. And in some of the most egregious cases that, that I've seen, um, closing whole libraries in black and Latino communities and then turning those libraries into detention centers within the schools. And so this, this use of the ideology of the prison that we're, it used to be explicit, like implicit that, okay, if you didn't perform well on a fourth grade standardized test, the education would kind of fast track you into uh, being, being targeted by law enforcement and ultimately incarcerated. Hmm. 
those kinds of systems, what, what people in, in the scholarly community call the school to prison pipeline is now being kind of amplified and expanded in Texas under this kind of law. And it works right in conjunction with Abbott's vision of border security, where just in the last few days, we've seen these floating buoys with, with, um, circular saw blades in between them that, that maim and kill people attempting to try and come to the United States and find a better life. And this is, this is some of the most horrific expressions of, of what we see as, as a conservative movement dedicated to white nationalism, that this, this Christian nationalist approach is to say that there's only one way to be an American. And, and if you don't comply, if you're doing things that we consider out of line, you will be jailed or injured or killed. And, um, for me, this has e- echoes back to the antebellum period and, and the kinds of social controls that people exerted across the South on slave plantations. Um, they intend to maim, they intend to kill, uh, they refuse to educate. And so, uh, just wrote a recent essay called The New Slaveocracy about this kind of united front to basically dictate to not just Americans, but people around the world that if you don't comply with Christian national nationalist conservative, um, you do that at the risk of your own life and, and the prosperity of your family. And it's the opposite of what the Declaration of Independence offers to us. But many slave songs were protest songs. Absolutely. Uh, so, Is it? but they were they hiding away as as religious songs? Oh, this is the gorgeousness. Uh, it's a totally different piece going back into the 19th century. But that, that piece of, of the sorrow songs that so many black scholars studied through the late 19th and early 20th century, um, set the tone for what is a, a black freedom struggle. How do you actually disguise your language in a way that, that sounds innocuous, but actually transforms the society that you belong to? And so that that's a piece of this story. This this is why I talk about the long history of Afrofuturism, yeah. is that they are imagining a different future. That it sounds like it's singing about the afterlife, but they're actually singing about their own desire for for their personal freedom in the here and now. I remember a lyric: "Before I'll be a slave, I'll be buried in my grave." <laughs> yeah. I remember um, also the song like "Sweet Low Sweet Chariot," right? Yes. Um. So it's and it's funny because like that song is. To, I think that's one of the best examples of like Afrofuturism, also just forward thinking and those coded messages in the music. Um, thinking about Ezekiel's wheel, right? Mm-hmm. That could be that has given much um, influence to black speculative thought. And it's funny because like you have that song "Swing Low, Sweet Chariot," but then. Years later, right in the seventies, yeah, Parliament Funkadelic, who called down the mothership, singing mm. that song. They changed it, right, to um, you know, swing, swing down, sweet chariot, uh, let me ride. And then years later, you have Dr. Dre who samples that song and he makes his song "Let's Ride." And then you have another song by a rapper named Jay Electronica called Ezekiel's Wheel. All of that music goes back to that Negro spiritual. So, you know, it's almost as if they were, they were creating a new future through, through that song. Is it a responsibility of the arts to get these messages across? So I, I think so. And I look back to Du Bois 
basically making the argument that art has this kind of meaning, this kind of uh, cultural and social impact. And to be attentive to it is to reach the highest stages of art. Now, not all art is going to do that. Not every artist has that kind of ambition. And there's a freedom to be an artist to do whatever you feel like your creativity drives you towards. But um, someone just asked me earlier today, what was my favorite hip hop album? What, what favorite song seemed to represent hip hop most for me? And that's, that's an easy question because I've been dealing with one song and one album for a long time. And it wasn't Illmatic. I'll say <laughs> Illmatic was something that I, right. I, I love and have done a lot of work on. But for me, the core of hip hop is, uh, most definitely Talib Kweli. And they have a song called Thieves in the Night. That is very much a black spiritual based in the, in the lyrics that come out of, uh, Toni Morrison's novel, The Bluest Eye. Yes. But it translates that into a sonic form that teaches people about how to stand up and find the highest virtues that they can give their lives to. And so Thieves in the Night is an extraordinary song. At some point, maybe I'll be able to put a book together about that. But those are the things that are present throughout hip hop, throughout black musical, throughout black creative expression. So who there are, are these high priorities about how we achieve our virtues and that we actually lead the path away from slavery, away from segregation and towards justice. So who are your ideal readers, people in the academy or, or hip hop fans? I love the general public. It's, it's a book designed, book designed for everybody out in the world. It, it has pieces that are relevant for scholars and for educators. I, I think folks who are in those traditions can do powerful things with the book. But it, for, for me, the ideal reader is, is a family at home who wants to explore the art of how liberation works and then shares that with their children and their grandchildren. That, that's my ideal reader. No, a number of hip hop. And I was, I would like to just. Oh, no, I, I just wanted to add that many academics are themselves hip hop fans. Um, that was one of the reasons that we chose to go this route um, with this book, because we feel as though there are hip hop fans who have grown up um, with this music, with this culture, who have things to say. Um, this book is filled with people who have listened to hip hop music their entire lives. And hip hop definitely like influences influences their craft. There are many crafts, um, and it doesn't matter if um, you're in the medical industry, like one of our um, a medical professional, like one of our contributors, Ryan J. Petaway, um, whether you're a cultural critic like Ro- uh, Rhonda Rasha Penrice, or whether you're a lawyer, you know. Um, so I think that many, I think there's a lot of overlap. Well, I, I have to ask you one more question. I only have a minute left. A number of hip-hop artists like Kanye West and Ice Cube have moved to the far right. What do you think that's all about? Well, um, I will say this. Okay. We're, we're, when, I will say this. When you're dealing with, when you're dealing with hip-hop culture, when you're dealing with rap music, um, when, and it doesn't, and it just didn't start with hip-hop. Um, you can go all the way back to the blues. When you deal with putting the music out on a large scale and you, you start dealing with corporate America, hmm. then, you know, you have a, you, you have a, you have a lean and sometimes the artist might lean and go to the right. Uh, 
for instance, like Kanye West, you know, he not only is a rapper, but he has a lot of influence. Like he's gone crossed over into like the fashion industry. Um, the same as with Ice Cube, like, you know, he does movies, he has a basketball team. So I will say this, that when we talk about hip hop, there's also, we have to also deal with the idea of hip hop's interaction with corporate America. And I, and I, I, I appreciate our interaction. Unfortunately, we're out of time. I want okay. to thank you both, Walter Grayson and Danny and Daryl Jerry. Okay. Uh, the, the book they co-edited Illmatic Consequences, the Clapback of Opponents to Opponents of a Critical Race Theory is now available. It's been a pleasure talking with you. It's been great talking with you, too. And that brings us to the end of our show. My great thanks to Keziah Glow, our executive producer, Reggie Johnson, our audio engineer, for all the important work they do throughout the week. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our over 800 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. And our podcast, which has far surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, everywhere else you get your podcasts. If you want to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the station coming to you. We are asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. Uh, we, we need your help to keep bringing this unique in-depth content, information you don't usually get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, if you make a, a contribution of $50 or more in the name of London Lopate at Large right now, you can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, Illmatic Consequences, The Clapback, to opponents of critical race theory. So why not make that call right now, 212-209-2950, or go online to give to WBAI.org. That's given the number to WBAI.org. And you might also consider becoming a sustaining member of what we call a BAI buddy for $5, 10 15 $20, $25 a month, allowing us to plan for the future as long as you are willing to do it. And we'll say thank you with a BAI tote bag to anyone who signs up for $10 a month or more. Uh, We're off on Monday, but I hope you can join us again on Tuesday when Bob Henley will be my guest. We'll see you then. Have a great weekend.